This is the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. We are a group of men who gather together to encourage each other in friendship and in faith, and to support each other to be better husbands, fathers, and better men in the marketplace and in our communities. Friendship at NCS happens through our regular meetings in local chapters all across the country. The Franklin, Tennessee chapter meets the first and third Thursdays of each month at Puckett's Grocery and Restaurant in downtown Franklin from 7 to 8 a.m. This podcast is sponsored by Harrington Interactive Media. We create quality media products like this podcast and we help you market them. One product we make is high quality eBooks, which are great for generating leads. Check out some examples of eBooks we've produced and hire us to edit, design, and format your company's next eBook. Go to harringtoninteractive.com. In this episode, Eddie DeGarmo shares a talk called God's Love Has No Limits. It's one from the archives, recorded on October 18th, 2018. Welcome to our uh, New Canaan Society breakfast. Most people don't know what the New Canaan Society is. We're not sure we know. Uh, because we kind of have, uh, we're one of 70 chapters around the United States, and we kind of get to make up what we do. Um, and that's kind of what we do on the fly every day uh, when we're here. So uh, we're in our eighth year uh, having men's breakfast. If you, thank you. <clears throat> it would not have happened without Larry Stone, who is our communications director and our, our maintainer, and he, he's the, the man of the yellow pad. If you want to be on our email list, you can sign up. Uh, to the, we, bu- we will bombard you with two emails a month. Two. Uh, we don't ask you for anything except every now and then we, we tell you about uh, some things that are fun in our community. Uh, we, have, we have had, uh, at Christmas time, uh, four of the last five years, Becca Stevens from Thistle Farms, uh, who has this incredible ministry, Magdalene Ministries, Thistle Farms. Uh, their whole purpose is to uh, help uh, prostitutes get off the street and find a new life. And, of course, uh, the reason there are prostitutes is because there are men who are in uh, great places of disrepair in terms of their humanity. Uh, Doris Walker, and I want to tell you a little bit about her story, and then we're going to introduce our speaker for the morning, because there's an opportunity for us as men to do something to help with the repair. Doris Walker was a prostitute in Nashville for 23 years. She's from a little Baptist church background up in uh, uh, White House, Tennessee. At the age of 16, her, her favorite aunt comes into their house in a rage one night and shoots her father dead. He falls at her feet, blood all over her. And it was a complete misunderstanding. But, but anger and rage and turmoil can do all kinds of things to you, so you've got to watch that. And at the age of about 19, she she's, gets married, has three kids. She's in, a, in an abusive marriage that was just violent, and she had to get out of it. But at 31, she is in abject poverty. Her parents were sharecroppers, and with her father gone, everything went wrong that could go wrong. And she winds up at the age of 31 as a prostitute for 23 years on the streets of Nashville. She'll be here with Becca Stevens uh, on on our uh, first Thursday in December uh, to tell part of her story. Uh, I met with her because she and she and some of the other women there have become friends with Linda and, and me, and every now and then we'll have lunch with them. We had lunch with, uh, with Doris a couple of weeks ago, and there was a great big old ring on her finger. 
And I looked down and I said, Doris, what is this rock on your finger? She said, I'm getting married. And I said, when are you getting married? I, she said, when I can, sure, when, when I can save $5,000 if I want a church wedding because the first wedding I ever had was not a church wedding. And I said, well, isn't Jay Bird going to help? Jay Bird is, is her childhood friend that she's marrying whose wife died of cancer 10 years ago. And I said, isn't Jay Bird going to help you with, this, with the wedding expenses? She said, that's not how we do this. That's not how that happens. Besides, he's going to be broke the rest of his life paying for this ring. <laughs> and um, the, the, one, one other quick little story. Uh, the, the week that she got out of prostitution was rescued by Thistle Farms Ministries. She had gone home to just get in the bed at her mother's house because she was on the streets and so tired and thought she was going to die. And I said, well, what would happen when you're on the streets? She said, I always prayed when I was on the streets. I said, you're a prostitute, and you're praying when you're on the streets? And she said, yeah. I said, what were your prayers? She said, one of my main prayers is that I would only be raped but not murdered. So anyway, she goes home to her mother's house and gets in the bed, and it comes Sunday morning, and her mom says, get out of bed. Come with me back to church. She used to be the lead singer in the choir at the church when she was in her teenage years. And she goes back to church that Sunday morning. The entire church knows she's in, she's in prostitution. They invite her to come up and lead sing in the choir that Sunday. Yeah. Doris Walker's coming. I'm inviting the men that I know <clears throat> to help us pay for her wedding. And when, the, when she is here on December 6th, we're going to give her an envelope with whatever comes in. Uh, if you want to write a check to help, just make it out to Doris Walker. It's not tax deductible, uh, unless you know an accountant like Tom Bates who can do something. I don't know what. <laughs> anyway, so there's some, there's some joy in the middle of the sorrows, and we get to participate, and I invite you to do that. Um, our speaker this morning is uh, Eddie DeGarmo. I've known Eddie for a very long time. He and I were two of the culprits that helped create the ghetto called Christian music. And uh, of course the Lord does in interesting things even inside ghettos. And uh, much good came from uh, the message of the gospel going out through contemporary music, through rock music. He was a, uh, one of the principals in the rock band DeGarmo and Key. He's written a book uh, called Rebel for God. He's just uh, a man of tender heart, um, stout convictions, and just a sweet spirit. Would you please welcome Eddie DeGarmo? Good morning. Yeah, growing up in a rock band, I used to see this after staying up all night. So. Oh my, what a good group. Well, you know, uh, just north of here, not very far, there's a, a cemetery on Hillsborough Road, right in there behind the Sonic uh, restaurant, right across the street from the Kroger. And I have five grandchildren now. I'm blessed to have five, my wife and I. And my grandkids call me Mo. And they call my wife Nene. And we had our nine-year-old grandson not long ago, well, a little while ago, because it was a couple years. And we were driving down past that cemetery, and I looked up there, and I said, Louie, I said, Needy and I think that that's a beautiful place, and maybe when our time comes, that's where we'll end up. 
he looked back at me and he said, Mo, he said, I don't like it when you talk like that. He said, you're probably going to live five more years. And now that was a couple, three years ago. So, <laughs> I'm here this morning to talk to you about the boundless love that God sheds our way. Sounds like a very simple subject until you start unpacking it and it's pretty deep, you know, because you can't be acceptable enough to get accepted. There's no way to do that. And when I look at my life and the, the journey that God led me on and my wife on, I'm going to share some of that with you guys this morning. There's no other way to describe it than just the limitless love of God and how he plugged me in. And I'm sure you have your versions of that. And we've all gone through a lot of transitions in our lives. You know, my transitions were probably like yours in some respects and maybe a little different because uh, I toured on a rock, in a rock band for 22 years and then went into the music business side of things. But we all go through some good transitions. You know, we, we have celebrations when we get married, when we have our children. And then we've all had some pretty tough transitions, either through suffering when we get sick or uh, someone in our family gets sick, or, you know, our kids go through hard times, or, you know, some of us have been through family breakups and broken times, and it's, Occasionally, it's, it's, well, not even occasionally, I'd say usually, it's when God speaks the loudest in our lives, I think, it's when we go through those valleys. Wouldn't you agree with that? You know, and we're able to hear him. Tell you a little bit about my story. I was uh, born in Detroit, Michigan, a long time ago. And when I was four years old, moved to the big city of Memphis, Tennessee, right across the street, basically, from Graceland Mansion. I've been in the music business my entire career because I earned my first dollar when I was six years old because I trick-or-treated from Elvis Presley and he gave me a signed dollar bill. And being the little punk I was, I went out the very next day and I spent it. By the time I was 10 years old, I was playing in little bands. My mother had started me on piano when I was a little boy, and I hated it, you know. When you're a little boy, you want to go play football and baseball, and I was inside taking piano lessons, and so I didn't, didn't care for it too much. But then the British invasion came. A lot of us remember that with the bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Animals and the Kinks and all the rest of them. And my dad, the good Baptist, one day, went to the Southland Greyhound Park in West Memphis, Tennessee, and won $1,200 in 1964, <laughs> which is a big sum of money, and took me out the next day and bought me a little keyboard like the, like the rock bands used. And I, I think it was the guilt and the sin and the money that, that made him do that, because that was a huge sum. And I was the youngest of four boys, and my other brothers were jealous. But that's what started me playing in dance bands. And as I mentioned, I said, or maybe I didn't, but I grew up Southern Baptist. And uh, the Baptist in those years, this was 1963, 64, they didn't dance too much. You know, they've gotten to where they'll raise their hands a little bit, but even that's, even that's a stretch. So uh, I became estranged from the church in my teenage years because I wanted to play in dance bands. You know, and I was out playing in 
parties and skating rinks and this and that, and the Baptists didn't dance. And it was the 60s, and I became a part of the 60s in every way that you can fathom. You know, got myself in all kinds of trouble. Uh, one of my finer moments is that uh, I pledged a fraternity in high school, and I, I had to, and part of the pledge is I had to run naked past Graceland. I don't guess I'm ever going to be able to go into politics. <laughs> I think that one's gone. <laughs> you know, I was 16 years old. My grandkids talk about that one, too. They said, man, we hadn't even done that. What's wrong with you? So when I was 17, it was in the height of the Vietnam War. One of my brothers came home from the service, and he came home a very different kind of guy. Before he went out and he bought a big motorcycle, and he started riding with a motorcycle gang. And we came from just a middle-class middle, middle class America family, and so that, that was something different for us. We weren't accustomed to those kinds of behaviors and, you know, what motorcycle gangs did. But one night I came home at about, oh, I don't know, 2 in the morning after playing a dance north of town. And I was a senior in high school, and uh, my brother was sitting in the dark at our dining room table. And on one side of the table he had a bottle of whiskey, and on the other side of the table he had a Bible. And uh, I turned the light on, and I saw him just staring at him. And I said, what in the world has happened? What's going on with you? And he said, Eddie, he said, I have to tell you a story. He said, when I was in the service, he said, I dedicated my life to Jesus Christ. And when I came home, I was embarrassed to tell anybody. And he said, I tried to run, and I tried to hide. But he said, God won't let me go. Now you start thinking about that. He was riding with a motorcycle gang. God won't let him go. And he said, so I just want to tell you I'm sorry that I didn't share that with you and I want you to know what's happened. And by the way, you know, Jesus can be more than what we were grown up to believe in our lives. And I think you ought to look into it. Now I was never one that really sought out God much. Now, the interesting thing is he sought me out my entire life. You know, I just got finished with a book by Martin Luther, written by, written by an academic named Eric Metaxas. And Martin Luther would pray eight hours a day sometimes. And oh my gosh, you know, if somebody prays over eight seconds at dinner, I mean, I get bored. You guys probably relate with that. So I, I've never been one really to seek the Lord. But my brother began to witness to me, and we used to fight about it. And we used to fight so much about it, and sometimes it would come to fisticuffs, you know, but that's what brothers do. And one day I just said, you've got to stop talking to me about Jesus. I can't take it. And he said, oh, he said, you need something deeper in your life. I'm telling you, he can be here for you. And I prayed a simple prayer. God, either he's right or I'm right, and I want you to show me who's right got to be careful when you pray those simple prayers like that, <laughs> you know. And a few months later, I dedicated my life to Christ. And that's, you know, no pun intended, but it sounds like one. That's really when all hell broke loose. I went back to high school the next day, and I found my friend Dana Key walking down the high hallway. And I said, Dana, I said, I found Jesus. He looked back at me and goes, I didn't know he was missing, man. 
I said, oh, I did. I found Jesus. And I said, you can know him too. I said, let's skip school. <laughs> and so we did. And I, I picked up a Bible on our, one of our teacher's desk. He always, she always had a Bible laying on her desk. Funny how you remember things like that. And I started reading the Bible to Dana. And I, for all I know, I was reading Leviticus. I have no idea. But we, we skipped school, and we were, we were hiding out in a janitor's closet. And that's where he gave his life to Christ. And we went back to, high, uh, to our band practice that night. We practiced on Monday nights. And that was my first interaction with the world and rejection because I told them the same story. And it kind of went over like the Hindenburg. Oh, man, you know, that's cool for you, man. Can't we, like, play honky-tonk women or something? And so I saw that things were different for me, and I didn't know how they were going to be different, but they were different. And this was in 1972, Memphis, Tennessee. And I started writing songs that just reflected my faith. You know, Jesus, I had no idea there was any kind of music called Christian music other than Southern gospel music, you know. And I knew they had really nice hair and nice suits, but that's all I knew about them. And uh, I started writing songs that reflected my faith and soon found out that, you know, there were some other people that wanted to hear that kind of message too. Now, Dana and I formed our first Christian group in, uh, I guess it was July of 1972. And for lack of a better name, we called ourselves the Christian Band. And we painted big red crosses on all of our amplifiers and all of our equipment and, and had blood dripping off of the crossbar, you know. We thought that was cool. And so we started playing in clubs and bars. And we would, in between songs, share Jesus. And we got a few things thrown at us. So we tried playing in churches, and we got a few more things thrown at us <laughs> in those years. And people would say, well, why do you have to play rock music? I never even thought about it. It's just what I grew up on. It's what I liked, and it's just the way it came out. But that was a big deal in 1972. But we soon found out the kids around town really wanted to hear what we were talking about. And one night, uh, this really pretty girl came from East Memphis, and... Uh, I ended up marrying her. Her name's Susan. I call her my first groupie. She didn't, she didn't, that didn't go over too well with her. I usually get smacked around. But last year, Susan and I celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary. She claims it was only 22 and a half because I was gone the first half. But, you know, we did. And Susan became a believer at our rehearsal in 1970 late 1972 in Memphis. So I embarked upon what I thought was my calling, what I knew was my calling. And you know, in calling and career are, are different things I've, I've come to figure out. Career is how you buy groceries. Career is how you pay your rent. Calling is how we build the kingdom. You know, and we are all called. If you know Jesus, we are all called to build the kingdom. We all have a lot of different careers. I made my career off of selling products that contained the gospel, 
lot of times I was, you know, uh, accused of selling the gospel. And I thought about that a lot, you know. And I, I've decided that I, it was an oxymoron. You can't sell what's free. I sold music and I sold products and I sold books, but I didn't sell the gospel. But as I look around this room, I'm sure there's probably a hundred different careers that are represented here. But there really is only one calling. And we're all called to build the kingdom. I found a modern English translation of Corinthians 13, 7 to 10 that I thought really spoke to me. I think it'll speak to you. Love knows no limit to its endurance. No fading in its hope. It can outlast anything. In fact, it's the one thing that stands when all else has fallen. The story of God's love in my life is miraculous. Not long after Susan and I got married, we were the ripe old age of 19. I was working construction. I had grown very bitter because I had to make a living to get to that career stuff. Some of you guys have probably faced that. You know, you hate what you do. Well, I hated what I did with a passion. And uh, I think I became pretty hard to live with. And I got up one morning to work construction at, the, you know, about 5 o'clock, swung my legs out of bed to go to the bathroom, and my legs came out from under me, and I couldn't walk. Didn't know what had happened. Don't remember to this day any accident that I had, but I couldn't walk. So they took me to the doctors, and the doctor said, well, Eddie, you've ruptured three discs in your lower back. And this was 1975 in the middle ages of back surgery. So we're gonna to have to lay you up in bed. And they did for several months. And whatever little that Susan and I had, we lost. And then they said, well, we, we think we're gonna to have to do surgery on you because we can't figure out a way to get you through this. And uh, by the way, you've got about a 60, 65% chance of being paralyzed because we're kind of new at this. And I said, wow. So I was, I think, 21 years old. And I went into a hospital. And uh, I was in the hospital in a, in a room with two other guys. Next to me was a Jehovah Witness pastor. And yeah, that was fun. <laughs> and then the next bed over was an old gentleman that actually died during the night, the first night I was there. So I was like, man, this is the Twilight Zone. So they did surgery on me, and fortunately they were somewhat successful. I still walk with a limp, if any of you see me walking around, but at least I walk. But I was laying in bed the next day after surgery, and I had this big contraption over me like a, you know, uh, uh, what are they using, the trapeze, like in the circus, that I could move around traction, you know. And I was probably doped up to the hilt on morphine or something like that. And uh, I think at that moment in my life, I probably heard the voice of God deeper and louder than I ever have before. Because God said to me in that moment, he said, Eddie, he said, all those things that stood in your way of you doing my calling, he said, I asked you to 
to take this music thing and I ask you to use it to spread the gospel. But you decided you couldn't do that. But he said, all these things that were standing in your way, he said, they're not there anymore. He said, because you've got nothing. It was the most freeing moment I've ever had in my life because I truly had nothing and I had no more to lose where it seemed to me. I was all the way on the bottom. So in our suffering, I think it's when we hear God the loudest sometimes. Wouldn't you agree with that? It is. It's what refocuses us on the path of where he wants us to be to build his kingdom. Because remember, building his kingdom is number one. You know, our career is probably down the list three or four. You know, we've, we've got family and loved ones in between that. And then comes career. We in the United States, it's funny how we teach our kids that career is the most important thing when they're in school. But it's, it's, it's down the list a little bit. So, shortly after I got out of the hospital, my friend Dana Key came to me and he said, I think we ought to get the band back together. And we did. And uh, we made some demo tapes. And one day the phone rang in my house and my wife answered it. And, uh, hello. And then she hung up. And I said, well, who was that? She said it was some clown, said he was Pat Boone. Fortunately, he called right back, and he said, is this Eddie DeGarmo? And I said, yeah, and he said, please don't hang up on me. He said, the last time I called, I got hung up on her, got disconnected. He said, I've got a, a demo tape. It's got your name written on it and magic marker in this phone number. He said, I don't even know how I got it, but he said, I've got it. He said, but I think I can help you. And so next day, Pat, and this was in the 70s when he was still, you know, a big deal still a big deal today at 84 I think but uh, in those days he was still you know doing movies and on the tonight show and that sort of thing so he flew to Memphis uh, with another fellow named Mike Kerb and I signed my first record contract in Christian music thought we were on our way people were still throwing stuff at us but we thought we were on our way so over the next 20 years I traveled the world and I saw hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ in our concerts. We were evangelists, that's what we were called to be, and uh, we spread the gospel. And sometimes I, I think our art probably was compromised a little bit, I do, you know, because we would do things to get on the radio or we would do things to get written about in magazines. And the one thing I've learned is that when you decide as an artist to sell your art, that's the first compromise. That's the, that's the very, whether you're a writer or you're an artist or you're a visual artist, whatever. When you decide to, to enter into the world of commerce, that's your first compromise. Because regardless of how pure you are, you start to listen to what the audience wants. Probably the same if you're a home builder. If you build homes that sell, you tend to build the same kind of home. So that's what we did. Uh, fast forward a few years. One of the things that God taught me was how to work with the world. And it was through an interesting, uh, interesting story, I'll tell you, is that we were touring up through Virginia, and we were on one of the back roads in Virginia. And we were in a little truck, kind of sandwiched in there, six sweaty bodies. And all of a sudden, it started to shake, kind of like a hula dancer. 
and uh, pulled over to the side of the road and went around the back. And all the lug bolts, but two, on the rear wheels had sheared off. They were gone, and the wheels were sideways. And we were at the bottom of a big ravine, and I could look up and I could see one of those beautiful Virginia horse farms on the top of the hill. This was before cell phones. So I decided to trek up the hill and knock on the door to use the phone, get somebody to come rescue us. And I knocked on the door, and this beautiful woman answered the door in a long red evening gown. Now this was about one o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, this is different. <laughs> Fortunately, I had our bass player with us. And uh, I said, may I use your telephone? I said, our, our truck is parked on the side of the road. And we're broken. She said, well, sure. She said, it's right to the top of the stairs. So I walked up the stairs in this beautiful Virginia mansion. And at the top of the stairs, the whole house had been gutted. And there were probably a dozen twin beds. And on every bed, there was a beautiful woman. And I said, wow, this is weird. This is really different. And then I looked at the end of the hallway, or the end of the room, I should say, and there was a door, and out the door came this woman, and she was topless. And I said, wow, except she had no breast. In fact, she had a hairy chest. And I said, what? I said, the joke's on me. What's going on to this lady that led us up the stairs? And all of a sudden, there was a huge burst of laughter. I said, oh, honey, he said, we're a, we're a traveling troubadour of transvestites. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's got his mouth hanging wide open. <laughs> That's a good way. And I said, well, we're a Christian rock band. <laughs> so I'm not sure who thought who was the more bizarre and the more weird. But she says, honey, what's happened to your truck? And I said, well, it sheared off the lug bolts that hold the rear wheels on. She said, well, we can work on those beastly things. And those guys, or girls, I'm not these guys, came out, went to town, bought all the parts, jacked our truck up, fixed it, one of them, in drag under the truck. While we shared stories about... You know, they shared stories about touring with their group, and we shared stories about Christ and touring with our group. And they fixed our truck. But I learned a great lesson that day. That, you know, we're not in the world, but yet we live in this world. And it's amazing the amount of impact we have when we just accept people, not necessarily agree with people, but accept people. Because that's a different thing. You know, the word tolerance is big in our society right now, but have you ever had anybody say to you, I tolerate you? <laughs> I mean, that's not a word of endearment or a word of love, I wouldn't think. That's not the boundless love that God talks about. God doesn't tolerate us. He embraces us. So I learned a lot about work in the world, which I think helped me in my later life. After my rock band days, I formed a, a record label with some friends here in town called Forefront Records, and one of our first signings was a little group called DC Talk. And over 10 years, that label grew to be the largest independent record company of Christian music in the world. And in the mid-90s, I made a very difficult decision, and I sold that business to a major entertainment company. 
and got a lot of criticism for it from friends. Well, you've sold out to the man, what's happened? But it was a time when Christian music was starting to creep on the, the mainstream airwaves, and all of our artists wanted that kind of promotion. We couldn't offer that to them. And the mainstream told us that they could. It was not always true, but they told us they could. And so we, we sold that business, and I went to work for the mainstream record business, the mainstream publishing business. <coughs> I finished out the next 25 years of my career working for Capitol Records and Universal Music, and I ran their music publishing business for Christian and Gospel. Now, I did some country and pop, but, you know, we had uh, 300 and something songwriters all over the world, and we were, when I retired, Four years ago, we were, we were the largest in the world of faith-based music publishing. And uh, one of the last things that I was able to do, I was at a conference in Los Angeles, Santa Monica, where the music publishers and the music labels from all over the world had gathered. And the purpose of the conference was we were each showing the other groups our business to see how we could work together. And my uh, staff had put together what we call a sizzle reel, a video reel, of, you know, performances by Toby Mack and Chris Tomlin and, you know, Michael W. Smith and Under Oath and you name it. And it was a stunning video reel, video presentation. And I showed this video piece, and it was about 10 or 12 minutes long, and there were maybe 150 people in the room. And at the end of... The video, this very well-known Jewish music entertainment attorney stood up and he clapped. And he was the only one clapping. And he looked at me and he said, Eddie, he said, I don't understand. He said, I was fully ready to hate everything that I saw and everything that I heard. But you have to explain to me, what makes this music Christian? He said, because I was all ready to hate this. But he said, I really liked what I saw. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I'm being asked in front of this room of, of the top of the top music industry executives in the world, entertainment executives, some were from film. What does it take to make this music Christian? God, please give me the words. I looked back at him and I said, David, I said, you know, I said, when you're a writer and you're an artist, you write what's about what's important to you. You know, country writers write about pickup trucks and rap writers write about the street. Pop writers write about young love. And Christian writers many times write about their faith. And they write about their values and they want to convey those values and, you know, that faith to others. And he still looked confused. And I said, look, the best way I can explain this is my own life. This is what happened to me. When I was 17 years old, I dedicated my life to Jesus, and I started writing songs about what was important to me. And the Christian music industry kind of grew up around me. And I said, most of you, have, maybe you're acquainted with the Bible, and some of you probably read the Bible, but if you know, there's a lot of subjects in the Bible we can write about. And that's what Christian music is about. And he said, Wow. He said, that really makes a lot of sense to me. I, I often wonder if my words had any impact on anybody, but that, that's the calling stuff. That's the calling stuff that intersects with our career, you know. But whatever career you're in, 
you're still called to build the kingdom. Whatever it is, if you're an educator or you're an accountant or you're, you know, work for the state. We're called to build the kingdom wherever we go. I'll share one final story with you. One of the last concerts I played was on the steps of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., overlooking the famous pond, the reflection pond that we saw in the Forrest Gump movie where, where Forrest saw Jenny. And I was up there for a program called True Love Waits, which was a, a sexual abstinence program that the Baptist uh, put together in the early 90s. And uh, it was a pro-life movement. And they'd had kids, teenagers from all over the nation that had come and implanted crosses on the mall. And there was a quarter of a million crosses on the mall, little bitty crosses. And as you got up on the platform at Soundcheck, and I looked around those sea of crosses, they said they were endless. You could, they were as far as you could see. I mean, it was quite striking. And there were probably, at that point, it was, you know, before the concert, might have been a thousand people out in front of the stage uh, before it began. And I looked and I saw this one guy that looked a whole lot like Jesus. He was wearing a robe and he had long hair and he had a big beard and he had a full-size cross that he was toting through the crowd. And I said, I got to know more about this. So we played our sound check and I walked off stage and I walked down and I met this fellow and I said, I said, sir, I said, excuse me. I said, but I couldn't help but notice you. I was up on the platform looking down. I said, why do you carry this cross around like this? It was over his shoulder. And he said to me, it sounded like King James English, but he said to me, he said, brother, he said, we must partake in the sufferings of Christ. And I said, yeah, but I said, Jesus, he carried that cross, so you don't have to. And he just, he repeated himself. He said, brother, he said, we must partake in the sufferings of Christ. And so I looked to the ground, and I said, well, why do you have that little rubber wheel on the bottom of the cross? <laughs> if that's the case. And he looked up at me and he said, everyone has their limits, brother. <laughs> everyone has their limits. And I thought about that, and he's right. We all do have our limits. Isn't it awesome and wonderful that God's love has no limits? Thank you. Was that Arthur Blessed carrying the cross? Arthur Blessed probably was. Uh, Eddie, thank you so much uh, for this. I asked Eddie just a second ago if he has a favorite song out of all of his music experience. And uh, Eddie, say it out loud. What was it? 10,000 Reasons? 10,000 Reasons. 10, reasons. Yeah, great song. Uh, brothers, we love you. Um, keep a smile on your face. There are a lot of people out there that uh, don't understand uh, joy. Uh, maybe you don't feel it this morning. You got a lot of reasons to smile. Don't forget about it. God bless you. You've been listening to the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. If your company is looking to share valuable content with your customers or clients, put it into an ebook or a print book. Hire Harrington Interactive Media to edit and package that book, whether digital or print, so that it looks professional.
go to harringtoninteractive.com. Talk to you soon.